Hi, Francina. Hi. Thank you for taking the time. Um, we asked you to recite the opening poem from For Color Girls, but I want to ask, what was your first encounter with the show? When I went to college, I went to the illustrious Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland. I was cast in the production of For Color Girls by Ms. Shazana Beverly. She was my director, and she also played in the original For Color Girls on Broadway. I mean, it was magical. There was just a, a story about Black women that was universal that needed to be told, and that's the story of our existence, right? Both delicate and complex and beautiful, and she really made us take the time to do the work to find out, like, why do we still need to hear and sing a Black girl song? Welcome to the show. I'm Kai Wright, and tonight we are celebrating a remarkable piece of art that has been singing a Black girl song for nearly 50 years. For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide, When the Rainbow is Enough, is a choreo poem. That's what Intozaki Shange called her groundbreaking work when she began performing it at a bar outside of Berkeley, California. It made its stage debut as an ensemble piece in Lower Manhattan in 1975. And on its journey from that debut through to its current Tony-nominated Broadway revival, this show has touched so many lives, including that of a young Francina Smith at Morgan State University. So to start our own journey tonight, here is Francina reading the opening poem to Four Colored Girls. It's called Dark Phrases. Dark phrases of womanhood, of never having been a girl. Half notes scattered without rhythm, no tune. Distraught laughter falling over a black girl's shoulders. It's funny. It's hysterical. The melody-lessness of her dance. Don't tell nobody. Don't tell a soul. She's dancing on beer cans and shingles. This must be the spook house. Another song with no singers, lyrics, no voices, and interrupted solos, unseen performances. Are we ghouls? Children of horror. The joke? Don't tell nobody. Don't tell a soul. Are we animals? Have we gone crazy? I can't hear anything but maddening screams and the soft strains of death. And you promised me, you promised me, somebody, anybody, sing a black girl song, bring her out to know herself, to know you, but sing her rhythms, caring, struggle, hard times, sing her song of life. She's been dead so long, closed in silence so long. She doesn't know the sound of her own voice, her infinite beauty. She's half note scattered, without rhyme, no tune. Sing her sighs, sing the song of her possibilities. Sing her righteous gospel. Let her be born, let her be born and handled warmly. I'm outside New York. And this is for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. 
That was actor Francina Smith reading the opening poem to four colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. You can find Francina in the new film, The List, coming out this fall, so keep an eye out for that. The current Broadway revival of Four Colored Girls is sadly about to close, so if you are in the New York area, please take my advice and race out and get a ticket right now. You will thank me. Recently, I joined our producer, Regina Tahir, in meeting the show's director and choreographer. Camille A. Brown has had a remarkable career in her own right. She's been the choreographer of several groundbreaking works, both on stage and in film. It's a long list of stuff. I mean, most recently, she directed the widely acclaimed opera Fire Shut Up in My Bones. That was the first opera by a Black composer ever performed at the Met. And she was the first Black woman to direct on the Met's main stage. More of you maybe saw her work as choreographer of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which was on Netflix, or in a whole bunch of other shows. Not to mention that she's got her own dance company, which has a mission of empowering Black bodies to tell our own stories through movement. And the point is, Camille Brown was exactly the right person to bring four colored girls back to Broadway. And it's earned her a second Tony nomination. Regina and I talked to her just as the show was opening. Hello, Camille. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hi. Hi. So one of the, I think, most powerful things about Four Colored Girls is just how many generations of Black people and Black women in particular, but but Black people of all sorts, have these origin stories with how we first encountered it. Uh, our, our, how we developed a relationship to it. Do you have an origin story for the show? I do. So my aunt and my uncle had a poster up for Colored Girls uh, in their Brooklyn apartment when I was younger. So I remember just staring at it mm. um, and being enamored, like, oh my gosh, that's so incredible and the colors and everything. And then um, my mom... As I was growing up, and she still tells me this to this day, she always told me, don't ever let anyone take your stuff away. Mm. And she she would just tell me that when I got down or self-doubt or just really felt down about like persevering. So she would always tell me, don't let people take your stuff away. Don't let anyone take your stuff away. And um, she didn't tell me until a couple of years ago that it she got it from seeing the show. So I feel like this show has been a part of the fabric of my life since as early as I can remember, because that's what my mom ingrained in me. Never, never give up. Never let anyone take your stuff away. Mm. It's wild because when I was preparing for the show, I almost had to get out of my own way because I knew that, like you said, for so many black people, particularly black women, this has been such a, an important part of, of who we are. And so um, it's been done so many times by so many different people. And like, I got in my head a little bit about, well, you know, I have to do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And finally, I was talking to a friend and she said, you know, this is an offering. That's what Mm. it is. Don't worry about anything else. But this is what you want to say with the work. So I went forward uh, with that in mind. Mm. Um, I personally didn't have much experience with the show itself other than a vague idea of the premise. But the show, when I saw it, really spoke to my soul as a woman of color, especially as a Black person who has grown up in 
predominantly white spaces. So for listeners who may not be familiar, what would you say it's about and how would you describe it? Because it's not a straightforward narrative. No, it's not. You know, it's about sisterhood and empowerment and Black women holding space for each other in order Mm. to share all types of emotions, whether that be pain Mm. or joy, sorrow, intimacy, vulnerability. It's just that playground of of love and comfort. So that's what I would I would say the the show is about. Just hearing that, I'm thinking of being in the audience and seeing the performers express in the show. I'm still quite haunted by especially the Lady in Green's poem towards the end of the show. Somebody almost walked off with all my stuff and you Since you brought it up earlier, I wonder, what does that poem mean to you? And what do you hope it would say to the audience? Don't lose yourself for anybody. Because my mom put it in my head from the beginning, that's what I translate that poem to be. But I think the beautiful thing about Endojaki Shange's poetry is that it could be translated in any way, but just in terms of stuff, like your stuff could be anything. Um, it could be something emotional. It could be something literal. Mm-hmm. And it also depends on the, the day or, or what space you're in in your own personal mm-hmm. life. You know, that kind of stuff continues to change. So I think it's about holding on to what is precious to us, most precious to us. Yeah, and I think that the, the vulnerability and the intimacy in these poems is so powerful. Yeah. And you really do see yourself in them. Yeah, And the poems are also often defiant and challenging. So I wonder, how did you as a director and choreographer approach that balance? Or if you even see it as a balancing act? I mean, dance is storytelling for me. And so it is a balancing act in terms of you have these two languages of text and movement coming together but like the phrase says the choreo poem they're actually working together Mm -hmm. so it wasn't something that I thought okay let me think about the text and now let me think about the dance um the dance is the poetry how does how does it move well listen to the text what is the text saying to you and it's storytelling and I used to tell stories without words all the time so this was an opportunity to tell stories, continue to do what I do, but have uh, live text with me, which which I have done before, but not as intense as, as this. Mm. There was so much play in the movement, even with often quite challenging uh, content. There was all this playful movement, I guess. Is the playfulness intentional? The playfulness is definitely intentional because we are as Black women, we are dimensional. Mm. You know, there are stories in there that are definitely um, talking about pain and sorrow, but there are also stories in there that are talking about celebration. And, you know, at the end when she says, I found God in myself and I loved her fiercely, like that's, to me, that's empowering. Like, how do we do that? You know, mama's little baby. I I mean, I put gigolo in there and (laughs) like, you know, these are yank dank. Um, these are things that are that are playful and we are dimensional. So it's important to to see the dimensions of who black women are. After the show, I couldn't help but think about the way so many black men um, in Shange's era sort of really intensely rejected the show, called her, you know, man hating and demonizing black men and all the rest. 
And I don't know, I just, in this moment, I'm sitting in the theater, there were tons of black men with me, some openly crying at the end of the show. And I just, I wonder how you think about how this show lands inside the black community today versus in the past. Oh, I mean, it's been, I wasn't even born when this (laughs) show was on Broadway. And I think... There are certain things, you know, we can say as black people that many things have stayed the same in terms of how we may be treated in oppression and stuff. But um, just in terms of how we've moved forward, I mean, there's so there's been so many movements that have happened even within the last two years. So I think even now approaching it, uh, people see it in, in different ways. And it is really interesting to see different groups Black men, black women, white men, white women, um, people of color coming to this show and their their individual responses. It's been interesting. Before we let you go, uh, we, we've talked about the lineage of this show, the creators and the audiences. I, I wonder if you had any connection or consultation with the creators, in particular, I'm thinking about Paula Moss, who was the original choreographer uh, and I guess co-creator of, of the show, really. Yeah. Did, did yeah. you have any connection with her? I met Paula Moss a couple of days ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. uh, she, her and some of the original members of the Broadway production, along with Diane McIntyre, came to our performance. And I didn't know this until like two hours before it, it was happening. They didn't wow. tell you they were coming? <laughs> they didn't tell me. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, but it was really lovely. Uh, at the end of the show, the cast was able to meet with uh, the original members and take pictures and it was really lovely and um, I actually was able to meet Ndjake Shange back mm. in 2017. Her sister Ifaye Baeza took her to see my company at the Kennedy Center and we had done another piece that I do Black Girl Linguistic Play the night before but she had missed it so she said she was interested in um, in seeing it and wanted to see a video but Dance doesn't always translate on video sometimes. Right, right. I was so nervous because this is Ndjake Shange. So I was like, oh, no, I don't want to send it. I don't want her to be disappointed. <laughs> so I procrastinated. And, you know, sadly, sometime later, she she yeah. passed away. So when I was asked to do the show the first time, I put in some gestures that were connected to Black Girl Linguistic Play in honor of her. Mm. And then her estate uh, asked me to do the show and and told me that she herself wanted wanted me to be a part of it so I was really um blown away by that that's beautiful that's yet another example of the way this show has just been passed from person to person for f- nearly 50 years now absolutely um, Camille, thank you for your work. Uh, thank you for your work on this show. Uh, and thank you for this time. It's really been a delight. Thank you. It's been an honor. Camille A. Brown is the choreographer and director of the Broadway revival of Four Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow is Enough. She's up for two Tony Awards for her work on the show. And we were inspired by the fact that the original cast surprised Camille by showing up when the show opened. So coming up, we're going to have a live reunion with a couple of those cast members. They'll tell us what this show has meant to them. And then we invite you to tell them what the show has meant to you. Call us up and tell the creators of this nearly 50-year-old work of art 
when and how it touched your life. We'll take your calls after a break. Welcome back. I'm Kai Wright. This is the United States of Anxiety. And before I bring on our next guest, let me just say this. Our hearts are certainly with the black community in Buffalo right now. The horrific act of white terrorism that took 10 lives this weekend is hard to process. We will, of course, eventually have a conversation about that on this show, but not tonight. Tonight, we are intentionally celebrating black life, not death. And I ask you to join me in that space. This work of black art for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough is a genre-changing contribution to theater, poetry, and dance, created and recreated over the years by a group of remarkable black women. If it has touched your life, we want to hear from you. We're going to be joined by members of the original cast, and our phones are open if you want to celebrate with them. When did you first encounter four colored girls? How has it touched you? And I'm joined first by the legendary Trezana Beverly. She was the first black woman to win a Tony Award for Best Actress for her role in the original 1977 Broadway production of Four Colored Girls. She played the lady in red. She has subsequently directed the show and taught it to young actors like the one who read for us at the start of the hour. And Trezana, it's such an honor to have you with us. Thank you. It's my joy to be here. Can you start by helping people understand what this show meant to audiences as a life-affirming piece of Black art, as I was saying earlier, as a life-affirming piece of Black art when it first entered the world in the mid-1970s? Oh, my. There's so many examples of how it affected Black women. I can remember when we were creating the show uh, down at the Henry Street Settlement uh, with Woody King, who was one of the producers on the show, Uh, Black women were literally falling out in the aisles. Mm. It was like having church. And I've said, I've said many times that uh, when we were leaving the theater, when we were at the public, when we were on Broadway, uh, many evenings when uh, the cast was uh, leaving uh, uh, through the stage door, Uh, there would be a sister hovering in the shadows Mm. and uh, she would follow us down the street and then eventually uh, say, mate, can I speak to you? Can I say something? And we would turn around, of course, of course. And invariably they would say, thank you for telling my story. Mm. And that happened to us many times. Um, There was no show no commercial play that uh, had created a national narrative uh, like for colored girls. It literally changed the lives. It affirmed black women. It changed the lives of many, many, many black women. Let's go back to the origin story you're suggesting there. So, so Intozake Shange arrives in New York city with her choreo poem and she had been performing it in California on her own. And as I understand it, her sister convinces her to stage it here with a director. Yes. And she shows up at the first rehearsal at a bar in the Lower East Side and finds that the director has gathered an ensemble, including you. Do you remember that moment? Tell, tell us about how you came to the show. 
Um, I had uh, uh, R. Scott, who was the uh, original director of the play, he and I uh, went to NYU Tisch School for the Arts. Now it's Tisch. At that time, it wasn't. So he knew my work. He had been a stage manager at um, at the Public Theater uh, with Novella Nelson. And uh, Novella gave me my first break in commercial theater. So Oz knew my work very well, and he actually called me and asked me to be in the show. I think all of the the young women who were in the original cast were actually handpicked. I don't think any of us auditioned for the show at all. Wow. Wow. Well, well, let me bring in another person who was there at the start, uh, speaking of the handpicked cast. Aku Kadogo is head of the theater department at Spelman College now and was part of that original ensemble in the Lower East Side. Aku, thanks so much for calling in. Thank you so much for having me. I, it's a pleasure. Can you tell us about Intozake Shange herself? I mean, if you were introducing her to someone back then, let's say, how would you have described her? Well, I met Intozake Shange in Diane McIntyre's dance class, in fact. Mm. And it was there that she asked me to join her and Paula to do some of the clubs. Intozake was a force to be reckoned with. She was a dancer, and I knew her as a dancer. But then she had these powerful words, and honestly, she wherever she performed, people were really having to deal with her and with these beautiful words that were so rhythmic. Also, remember, she's performing with musicians, so it was always going to be somewhat of a happening. And my, my interpretation of it, we were really... We were really a part of the performance art lost scene movement. Mm. We were performance artists, and that's what we were doing. And Zaki was just really, if we were at a party and Zaki did a poem or a musician joined in with her, she lit the room up and she was a force to be reckoned with. Our producer, Regina D. here, is a young Black woman who saw the show for the first time as we were working on this episode. And she's talked about how unprepared she was for it. That's the word she uses, unprepared. (laughs) I wonder what it was like for you, Aku, uh, as a young performer when you first encountered the work. Well, very interesting. I I now say, you know, in hindsight, it's 2020 vision. (laughs) We... We were the the children of Sonia Sanchez, Amiri Baraka, um, Barbara Antier. They had laid a ground of this kind of ritualistic performance style, but we were to explore it and explode it onto the main stage. And I think that's, when I look back now, so I feel like I've been performing in Black theaters, in fact, I'm from Detroit originally, so I was working with Concept East Theater, which was founded by Woody King and David Rambo, I might add. And we were already performing poems and kind of doing these music movement pieces and working with musicians. This wasn't unusual, but then we came together for a hit the theater in this way that it had done. Because when I was with Zaki and Paula, and we would go to the clubs and we would decide which poems we were going to perform that night. So it wasn't the order of the play, the poems themselves organically came about oh, wow. as we rehearsed this piece with uh, Scott. Yes. So we used to do it like we do four or five poems in a night and say, let's do this. It was this. We cut some poems. So then the order of the work began to reveal itself to mm-hmm. us and how it might make 
not a chronological sense, but a, a kind of emotional mm. sense, how it might be ordered. And, and some of the highs and lows, Oz, Scott, and I often speak about the highs of the show, but the where you had to bring it back or, or go forward with the emotion of it. And so as we worked the pieces, this is what we were doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go to some callers. Let's, let's hear from uh, Cilantra in Brooklyn. Cilantra, welcome to the show. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. You are. Thank you so much for having me. What was your first experience with the show? I mean, how wowingly ironic is it that you had Aku Kadogo on your show when the piece I'm about to share with you is how For Colored Girls has seemingly followed me throughout my entire um, literary connection through high school and college. Uh, I actually went to Spelman College and had many exchanges with Aku Kadogo, um, but I actually saw for Colored Girls for the first time as an adult and had a really special connection with the way that community and continuum traveled through this play. Mm. And it's so interesting that it's a choreo poem because that movement also travels the message. It also, you know, it gives the message to the audience, but it creates an eternal message and an eternal continuum between Black women in an artistic community, but also Black women just living their lives. Mm. And I think that's really special and uh, worthy of sharing. So thank you. Thank you for that call. Uh, Aku, do you teach for colored girls at Spelman, or, or how how do how do the students react to it when they encounter it? Yes, I have. I've taught it. Sometimes I teach a work or two, um, and sometimes I teach the entire work. The entire work is a is a complex thing to teach because sometimes I want to break down mm. what was going on. There's so many, you know. For me, for example, to talk about the work A Night with Bo Willie Brown, you can't talk about it without talking about the Vietnam War. Just to clarify for listeners, that's a poem at the end of the show. Uh, yes. Uh, it's one of the more powerful poems. Go ahead. And, and the other piece that I was just saying to someone that I learned about, I didn't know about Toussaint Louverture until I did for Colored Girls. I hadn't been taught about him. Mm. And so then there's this beautiful, delightful work about going to the library. And because we were all a certain age, we all remember when you could go, you you had a children's library card, but then you had to go to the adult side and then get your adult library card. But then here was this man, a black man, like my mama say, to quote the poem, Toussaint Louverture. So then you're also, you've got to talk about that. There's some historical references, musical references, and it's just a very dense, rich, wonderful work to explore. Let's go to Fran in Queens. Fran, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Uh, Thank you for doing this. And um, for Colored Girls, it was just life-changing for me. I, um, as a woman, uh, as a white woman or a woman of white, as I I began to call myself after the show, um, I was... I was treated to the show by several sisters from my community. I had just made my final vows as a religious. And um, yes, that last line, Mm. I have found God and the voice in myself. And the empowerment of women, the the truth, the bravery of those stories. Uh, I am a poet and a playwright and in my younger years used to be a dancer and... um, it just has shaped much of my life, much of my, um, the way I think about race, the way I think about justice, mm. the way I tell stories. That if I could just read two lines of, a, of an elegy I wrote for Antisaki, I met her about three weeks at the Dodge Festival, about three weeks before she died. If I could read like the first three lines, they're short. Yes, please. Somewhere, somewhere, somehow, 
too soon, too fast, you passed over the rainbow. Is it enough, less or more? Do angels answer what you ask? Do the saints sing and dance your stuff? So she has, I mean, it, it was life-changing. Thank you for that, Fran. Uh, Trezana, talk a little bit about, we, we've heard about, you, you said how, you know, there would be black women literally falling in the aisles yeah. and, and waiting for you outside the doors. Um, uh, what about uh, really people of any other race, but but I'm thinking yeah. about white people in particular that came to this show. What what was that like at, the t- at that time? It was very, very interesting because there were um, white, uh, white ladies that, um, actually wanted to do the show and would actually question why, why wasn't, you know, why weren't white women in the show? And, mm-hmm. uh, and Zaki was very clear. She would says, you know, this is a black girl's trip. Um, you know, now, you know, the play in its evolution uh, and a work of art certainly leaves itself open to interpretation. Um, I know that uh, there are productions that have been done both in this country and abroad that have included uh, women of Asian um, uh, descent um, and even some cross-gender actors have been in the play. So, um, you know, it's, it's a work of art that certainly leaves itself open to interpretation. But at that time, uh, Zaki <laughs> was very clear. She was saying this is a black girl's trip. I mean, the title is for colored girls. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, you know, you could, you could stretch that, of course, you know. Uh, but yeah, yeah, black girl's trip. But it's still lovely to hear. I just and maybe Aku, what do you think about like the fact that Fran hears somebody that th- that said who was like this changed my life as a white woman? How often do you hear that kind of thing? I do, and I remember I was lecturing once at the University of Michigan, predominant white audience, and when I was introduced, and someone said for color girls, there was a gasp in the room, like oh, like that. So it it changed a lot of women's lives. But I will also say, I'm just going to just name drop a couple of celebrities, white celebrities that Please. came. John Lennon came with Yoko, Jack Nicholson him on opening night with Angelica Houston, and he came into our dress rooms to congratulate, both of them came to congratulate us. So, you know, it, it was a work of art that people wanted to see, and that impacted the city, because we had moved this performance art form onto the main stage. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with Trezana Beverly and Aku Kadogo, two original members of the cast of the Broadway show for colored girls who considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. And our phones are open. If you have seen or read any version of four colored girls, call us up and tell us what the show has meant to you. Trezana and Aku are telling us what the show meant to them as performers. Here's your chance to tell them what it means to you. After a weekend in which there is yet again, a national conversation about black death, we are celebrating black life and black art. So join us. Stay with us. Hey everyone, this is Kusha. I'm a producer. Quick heads up, for next week's episode, we're highlighting some incredible new journalism from our colleagues at WNYC Studios. I don't want to give too much away, but it's a new series that touches on a lot of the themes that we talk about on the United States of Anxiety, like race, equity, power, and how that shows up in people's lives every day. 
We're super excited to give you a sneak peek at this series, so I do encourage you to tune in. And in the meantime, if there's anything from this episode that resonates for you, let us know. Does the story of four colored girls hold a special place in your heart? Send us a message, record your voice on your phone, and email us. Our address is anxiety at wnyc.org. That's anxiety at wnyc.org. All right, talk to you later. Welcome back. I'm Kai Wright, and tonight we are celebrating the groundbreaking show for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. The current Broadway revival is up for seven Tony Awards, and I'm joined by two members of the original cast. Trezana Beverly won a Tony for her role back in 1977, and Aku Kadogo, who is now the theater director of Spelman College in Atlanta, is with us as well. We're taking your calls. Let us know how this show touched your life. When did you first encounter it? What did it mean to you? And let's go straight to another caller, um, Susan from the Upper West Side. Susan, welcome to the show. Hi. um, It's great to be able to speak to the cast. I saw the show when I was a young teenager. I must have been about 14. I I went with Mm -hmm. my school in the Bronx. I was one of the only white students in the school and one of the only white people living in the projects. I lived in the projects and they brought Grade down. And I think I started crying from the moment that the curtain went up and when the women came out. Um, I didn't know theater could be that. I didn't know language could be that. Um, when the woman in green came out and said, somebody just walked off with all my stuff, <laughs> I thought she was looking at me and she was speaking <laughs> to me. I didn't think about my being white um, and that she wasn't speaking to me as a white girl. I thought she was speaking to the deepest part of me, a part of me that no one had ever spoken to before. And I had no idea that theater could go that deep. Um, It changed my life. I have taught the play. I taught it in a day school in Princeton, the 13 years I was there. I taught it in rural Maine. I taught it in Connecticut. And now I teach it in prisons um, all across the country. Um, And I saw the recent production this past Friday night because a friend got me a ticket as a gift. And again, when the curtain opened, I was 40 years later, my other (laughs) self kind of visiting my younger self in this piece. And I am so grateful to be able to thank you women for what you did. I know not just to me as a young teenager, but I'm sure all those other kids in the Bronx that were sitting with me. Thank you so much, Susan, for that call. And Carol, uh, this, I'm sorry, I'm cutting, I'm jumping ahead in my script, Trezana. Uh, the, the, <laughs> this idea that um, I didn't know theater could do that. Um, stands out to me um, from Susan there because I, I think about how different the landscape in theater was in the late, late 1970s in, in New York and that far predates me but as I gather there were all these small you know affordable places to put up like really experimental work like this and as a result we we got theater experiences like the one Susan is describing is that right can you just take us back to that moment and put this show in that context 
Yes. Well, you know, the the backdrop at that time was the Vietnam War and the Black Panther movement. Uh, the the uh, the atmosphere was palpable. Uh, you know, you, you know, as an African American woman, you could walk out on the street and get a job because it was so political at that time, and writers were just going crazy. So, I mean, you know, the work was there, mm. and uh, the stage was wide open for experimentation. Um, you know, you know, yeah. along along with the language, the poetry, the depth of Zaki's writing, she created that narrative theater. She broke down the fourth wall. Uh, Equus was on Broadway just a few months before we went there, and Chorus Line followed us. Uh, that was the mm -hmm. first time that narrative theater was actually done on Broadway. You could see that downtown, mm -hmm. but we brought it uptown uh, with the help and, you know, the genius of Joe Pat. So um, it was, as Aku said, it was a stirring pot of, of political energy uh, mm -hmm. that we we created this work. And, um, you know, we were we felt very, very free to do it. I don't think there was any hesitation among mm -hmm. us as young black women to go out and put ourselves out on the stage with uh, this very intense, intense piece of theater. But I, I also want to share this very, very quick story about, we were talking about white women also, uh, you know, feeling empowered by this play. A very famous mm -hmm. actress, who I will not name, <laughs> came to see the show. She had a friend who had just recently divorced her husband. And they were in a restaurant having dinner before the show. And guess who was in the restaurant? The man she had just divorced. <laughs> and this actress was bringing her friend to see For Colored Girls. <laughs> and after she saw For Colored Girls, she introduced me to a director who put me in his film. All right. There it is. There it is. So, and I can't I can't tell you who that lady was, but she was very famous and you would even Okay, well uh well I, I invite everybody uh on Twitter to play the game to see if you can figure out who it is uh, <laughs> that Trisada is talking about. We have a special caller who I want to bring on who knew Intozaki Shange in this show personally as well. Uh this is what I was jumping ahead to again a minute ago. Carol Mayard, Carol Maylard is one of the founding members of the Grammy Award-winning a cappella ensemble Sweet Honey in the Rock. Uh, she, of course, has had quite the career in theater herself. And Carol, thank you so much for calling in tonight. Oh, I'm having a ball. Thank you for having me. I'm <laughs> listening to my sisters, Aku and Trezana. Y'all are laying it out. And from the Upper West Side, Susan, I'm just in Oh, I'm having a good time. Well, let me ask what you. What can I tell you? Well, let me ask you this. So Sweet Honey in the Rock, all, an all-woman black ensemble formed in the 70s, another groundbreaking uh, art form yeah. made by and even for black women. What, what, what do you think it was about this time period that made it so fruitful for black women-centered work? I, you know, I'm going to back up. Okay. First of all, uh, the, the Sweet Honey in the Rock comes out of the theater. There's a DC Black Repertory Theater Company, and we were doing experimental theater. We would, it, oh, DC was Chocolate City. Yes. DC was ripe for creativity. 
And I am telling you, we did a little bit of everything in our theater company. And Sweet Honey was born uh, at the, I would say, the suggestion of one of the actors, a gentleman by the name of Lee Tari. Uh, he wanted us to have a vocal ensemble. We were doing poets, mm-hmm. and we were doing black playwrights. Mm-hmm. So coming to New York City at that time in the mid-'70s, we were coming out of these, uh, out of uh, that folk movement where all the music for pop and R&B started to take on a more socially conscious and political uh, conversation. So Sweet Honey was right up there in it. And the woman who wrote the song, I Found God in Myself, and there were some other songs I know y'all remember, My Love is Too Delicate yes. to Have Thrown Back on My Face. Mm-hmm. That was a song. And Diana Wharton was also a member of Sweet Honey and the Rock. So she did That's Sweet right. Honey, and then she came to New York and wrote the, gave Zaki those songs. I Found God in Myself uh, stayed uh, uh, in, in, in the production that I was in, in many productions, mm-hmm. but not this last one. But yeah, I think the time was right because, Folks were, you know, really expressing themselves in terms of what they wanted out of being an American, out of being a citizen of the world, Vietnam War, civil rights movement, women's movement, Mm -hmm. Chicano Mm -hmm. movement. So people were really moving into expressing themselves to say, hey, we are here. I am valid just because I simply am. I'm putting my stuff out there, like it or lump it. This is my truth and I'm standing in it. And I loved it. Seeing for colored girls, I just knew it was something I was supposed to to be a mm. part of, and grad, you know, little by little, I didn't do Broadway. I didn't. I turned down the national company, but I went to Australia with Aku, and then I did the uh, one of the LA companies with Trisana and Aku. <laughs> so my life was for colored girls. It's just in my blood. And then I did the TV show, uh, WNE, uh, PBS show. Yes, yes. For, for colored girls, and I directed. And what I asked Aku earlier to sort of introduce us to Intozake as a person. Mm. Um, uh, can, can you do the same? Who tell us about Intozake for you? I, when hey Aku nailed it, force of nature, creative, mm. bright, honest, full of her own God self, not afraid to express it. And you know what? When I say stuff like that, I have to always tell myself people have all kinds of experiences. They go from the high, the low, and the in-between, but it's what makes us human. And Antozaki was not afraid or had whew, so much chutzpah, <laughs> yes. you know, just to put it out there. And, and her writing stands, it's just beautiful. It's heartfelt, it's beautiful, it's honest, and courageous. Yeah, very courageous. I'm very glad I was a part, I'm a part of this legacy. Carol Maylard is one of the founding members of the Grammy Award-winning ensemble Sweet Honey in the Rock and uh, one of the many people who this show has touched. Thank you so much for giving us a few minutes of your time, Carol. Glad to, I was glad to be here, glad to be a part of the legacy, as I said. Uh, let's go to, we have another unexpected special caller, I believe uh, Owen uh, was the original publicist for the show and has called us up, heard it on the radio and called us up. Owen, are you, welcome to the show. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much. Yes, I was the national press agent for the tour, the national tour that uh, took the Broadway production around the country. So I, I want to clear that up. Okay. And I worked for Merle Debusky at the time, who was the, the main press office for the, for the uh, New York Shakespeare oh, yeah. Festival. But, 
But my comment is just that, you know, we're forgetting that, that a lot of women, a lot of men felt they were being attacked in for colored girls. Yeah. They felt it was anti-men in a way. And uh, an example of that was in Chicago. We had to have a community meeting with, with a local group who were very, who the men were very offended by the show, feeling that it was, it was drawing them in a bad light. So all of the cast members, myself and, and other people involved in the production, met with the community and it was like a forum situation to discuss the matter. And I, I think that made the show even stronger and better because we were able to explain to them that it wasn't so much anti-men as it was women, sort of you know, self-realization for women and not necessarily attacking men. So right. that, that was my thought on, on uh, this discussion here for Colored Girls. Thank you, Owen. And either Aku or Trezada, I, you know, I, I mentioned this to Camille Brown, the director of the current Broadway revival, that, that history and I, and, and how it was on my mind when I saw the show because I was surrounded by other black men, you know, now who were so embracing of the show. I just wonder if either of you want to comment on, you know, then versus now and how it's been received inside the black community. Well, I can. I uh, I teach uh, twice a week up at the State University of New York. I teach freshman acting, and I have uh, uh, a lot of young men in my class. I have a lot of young African American men in my class. I can tell you that the uh, the uh, the black man has evolved quite a bit. Uh, there's a, there's a new generation out here of young people who um, they, you know, they are not holding uh, their feelings so close to the vest. Um, I think that they are more open. They're more inviting, uh, invitive of change. I think at the time when we were doing For Colored Girls, because of the Vietnam War and because Black men uh, were, you know, the dominant numbers fighting in the Vietnam War, and so many of them came home with PTSD. Um, it was a very, very delicate time for the Black man. Um, you know, that was then and now is now. And I think that's why you saw a different milieu in the theater, uh, Kai, mm -hmm. uh, when you were there surrounded by uh, by Black men. That's a really interesting point. Do, do you want to quickly add to that, Aku, or does that cover it for you? I did. I wanted to just share a little anecdotal story about three times when we had gone to Broadway, there was a beautiful brother who would meet me after the stage and he would just say, why, why, what are you trying to say? And he was just grilling me for answers time and time again that I couldn't necessarily give him. And then about the fourth time, and this was over maybe six weeks or something, I walked out one night and he said, I understand. Mm. I understand. And it was just beautiful. And I, it, and, and what I wanted to say, and this also pertains to whoever came to see the show. Remember, we're all richer when we begin to pull back the curtain and share our stories. And we understand where we universally connect at what vortex we meet at. And, and I think this is what was the power of For Colored Girls. So many people came and it spoke to them in different places and different stories. Somebody almost took all my stuff. That could be anybody. You don't want to give your stuff away. So it's a, it's a powerful statement on the true universality Indeed. of the work. 
Aku Kadogo directs the theater program at Spelman College and performed as the Lady in Yellow in the original Four Colored Girls production. Aku, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Trezana Beverly was the original Lady in Red, a role for which she won a Tony, the first black woman to win Black Best Actress in a play. Uh, she stays busy, but you can catch her in Eleanor and Alice, presented by the Urban Stages on June 17th on Roosevelt Island, as well as directing The Mannequin Diaries coming soon. Thank you so much, Trezana, for this time. It, it, do you have, in, in the 10 seconds we've got, do you have a parting word on Four Color Girls for Folks? Um, they, you know, the, 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 the essence of Four Colored Girls is spiritual. It's about a spiritual awakening. When Zaki says, when the rainbow, she says, for colored girls who considered suicide, when the rainbow is enough, what are those colors? What do those colors mean? What is over the rainbow? You know, God created the rainbow as a sign. And, uh, you know, his return coming back in those beautiful, beautiful colors. So remember the rainbow. Always remember the rainbow. We'll have to leave it with those beautiful parting thoughts. The United States of Anxiety is a production of WNYC Studios. Our theme music was written by Hannes Brown, performed by the Outer Borough Brass Band. Sound designed by Jared Paul. Matthew Mirando was at the boards for the live show. Leora Gnome Kravitz mixed the podcast version. Our team also includes Emily Botin, Regina Dehir, Karen Froman, Kusha Navadar, and Rahima Nasa. And I am Kai Wright. Keep in touch with me on Twitter at Kai underscore Wright. And of course, find us live next Sunday, 6 p.m. Eastern. Stream it at WNYC.org or tell your smart speaker to play WNYC. Thanks for listening and take care of yourselves.